You're listening to The Spear, a podcast about the combat experience from the Modern War Institute at West Point. More than 100 meters outside the village, you were definitely getting in a firefight. My first patrol I took, we had a far ambush. And then it was just a, a huge explosion. The primary threat was RKG-3 grenades, like machine guns and AK-47s, that kind of thing. Small arms fire, RPG fire. Explosively formed penetrators. Suicide bombs. And then that's about the time that the third IED went off. And that's when another grenade comes spinning over the side of the wall. And it's at that point the IED chain detonates. There was enemy in the wire. There's all these Humvees on fire. It, it was truly bullets flying from every angle that, that you could see. I open the door and look outside, and all I see is muzzle flashes. There's a guy on top with a 240, and the rounds pass right past his head. At that point, our instincts kicked in. One, one pilot on the controls, the other pilot was using his M4 to engage single-man targets on the ground. You're shooting at everything. It was a fight. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this episode of The Spear, the podcast about the combat experience brought to you by the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm your host, Tim Heck. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by Bill Wyman, a retired U.S. Army colonel, who's going to be telling us a story about his time in Baghdad in 2004 and 2005. Welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks, Tim, and please uh, call me Fenway. You're familiar with that uh, nickname from... uh our time at the Joint Forces Staff College. So uh, I appreciate you having me on today and uh, look forward to uh, providing uh, you and others uh, a good representation of what civil military operations was like during OIF-3. As Fenway just mentioned, he was, uh, he and I met at the Joint Forces Staff College where he was my small group faculty leader. We go back about five years now. And so it's a great opportunity to to get some of the backstory from him about what, what he did there. So before we start all of that, and before we bring you to Baghdad, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your Army career? In August of 2019, I completed 40 years uh, within the U.S. Army. Uh, that span of time covered uh, enlisted time and commissioned service time. I've also served in the Army National Guard, the Army Reserve, and the Active Army during that period of time. I've had a myriad of jobs and, uh, and uh, also skill sets. So I started off as a young private uh, on active duty as a military police officer and had the luxury of serving here uh, towards our nation's capital at a time when um, we were faced with uh, rebuilding our military under the Reagan administration. Had an opportunity then to go over to Germany and uh, participate in uh, that point, defending the uh, European nations from Warsaw Pact uh, invasions, potential invasions. And uh, uh, in both of those tours, I I was exposed to uh, things that the Army doesn't have in a brochure, as you go into the recruiter's office, you know, the education and the training experience is first class within the Army, particularly as a, a military police officer. And then also just the, the training from the tactical side, being part of uh, reforgers or um, emergency deployment operations, both domestic and outside of the continental United States. And after about a three-year tour, uh, I went back into the uh, civilian world, joined the Army National Guard down in Louisiana where uh, I became a uh, member of the 528th uh, Louisiana National Guard's uh, Engineer Brigade. I was a powered wheel and light generator uh, mechanic. Spent about four years there and then transferred to Vermont, to the Army Reserve, and again back to the Military Police Corps. And was there until 1988 and uh, 
I was uh, had the opportunity to go on to officer candidate school through the Vermont Military Academy, commissioned in 1989 as an armor officer, spent 10 years in the Vermont Army National Guard as a uh, tank platoon leader and a mortar platoon leader. I had the opportunity to work on the M48A5 tank, the M60 A3 tank and the M1 and the M1A2 tanks, along with the 4.2 uh, uh, mortars. And then an opportunity was came up to join the uh, Massachusetts Army National Guard as an infantry officer. And I did that for five years in a light infantry uh, battalion, served as a headquarters company command for a light infantry battalion, and then also uh, on the brigade staff um, for the 26th Infantry Brigade as an operations officer. 2003 came along and 2004, things were heating up uh, Iraq. And um, a friend of mine called me and said, you ought to look into the civil affairs uh, organization within the Army. It's a great uh, opportunity to put skill sets, knowledge, education, experience to use. And uh, I did, and I found myself uh, completing the Army's uh, civil affairs uh, course down at Fort Bragg. And then uh, shortly after that, I found myself in uh, Sardis City, Iraq for a tour. So a long and varied career. When you went to civil affairs, were you expecting to deploy immediately or was this, hey, I'm going to go get a new MOS and a deployment's possible? No, I was expecting to deploy. At that point, I had had 25 years of service uh, with no deployments uh, other than training overseas. You know, like anybody else, uh, there was that uh, desire to serve uh, at a greater uh, level of responsibility. Uh, I was able to uh, join a uh, unit in Warwick, Rhode Island, uh, the 443rd Civil Affairs Battalion. And they were on their second tranche of uh, civil affairs teams headed out uh, to uh, Iraq. And um, I didn't know I was going to Sardis City, but I knew I was going to Iraq. It wasn't until... uh, I was on the ground uh, for about three days that I was told uh, I was going to Sauter City. I knew of Sauter City from back in April of 2004 with its uh, uprising from the um, Marty Army, uh, Muqtada Sada's, uh, and also the Barda Corps. Both organizations were creating havoc uh, across the battle space. And so having kept up on current events prior to my uh, Deployment, uh, it prepared me well, but no one can really prepare for the deployment until you get on the ground. And did you know you were going to be a team leader or was that also something you found out? Originally, I thought I was going over as a company commander for a civil affairs company. It's about 32 um, soldiers. There was a decision made to put me onto a team and have a four-person civil affairs team. I had the luxury of not just being a four-person civil affairs team, but expanding and contracting based on the missions. I was able to have two other team members, uh, both females, um, which were very helpful when it came to cultural engagements or arranging for specific programs that catered to the needs and and um, and care of uh, both women and, and female children. What's happening in the battle space at this point? You mentioned the earlier uh, small uprising. What's going on when you show up? So when I show up, uh, and I was uh, attached to 2-5 Cav out of the 1st Brigade of the 1st Cavalry Division, that uh, specific unit and and a sister battalion, the 2-12th Cav, owned the battle space within Sardar City. They had been in combat operations from um, April 4th, 
uh, of, of 2004. Um, the intensity level was sporadic. Um, IEDs were um, the favorite uh, weapon of choice by both uh, the Mahdi Army and the, the Border Corps and, and others. There was also um, a lack of tension from, um, at that time, the provisional authority that had been established. Central Provision Authority was focused on the country itself, not really on districts or, or a region of, of the country. And so you're dealing with all uh, aspects of um, national instruments of power. Um, so as that's uh, going on from a civil, civil affairs standpoint, you start to realize that um, much of the training that you received during the civil affairs qualification course or for the enlisted uh, through their AIT courses, that paying attention, taking things serious, and just being overall proficient in your basic soldiering tasks were a necessity at that point. What is the daily life like for your civil affairs team? On a daily basis, uh, there were patrols at that point where we would cross-level either the, the entire team with the battalion commander and go out and do um, engagements, whether they might be an engagement with uh, the chief of police, could be an engagement with uh, the district advisory council or a neighborhood advisory council. It could be um, with an imam uh, at one of the mosques. It might be just getting out and see the public and, and doing a foot patrol and a simple thing like kicking a soccer ball around with uh, some kids or uh, visiting a local market and assessing the goods and the services that are provided there and, and maybe even purchasing um, an item or two to add some value into the, into the uh, community. Other times, depending on the force protection and the op tempo and the um, permissibility um, for freedom of movement within the battle space, it may be cross-leveling an individual to a company or a platoon and that they would be the subject matter expert on uh, civil military operations to advise either the platoon leader, platoon sergeant, um, or the company commander, first sergeant. So we never really had a standardized uh, doctrinal template that we would follow. We followed basically um, uh, MET-T, in this case, probably MET-TC uh, principles. And that, uh, and that allowed us to be very effective, but it also allowed us to be an enabler for the combat uh, forces, the, the conventional forces, to do their mission. And when I look back, I, I see how uh, other teams may have operated in other uh, areas of uh, Baghdad or within the, the country. Um, they had to make those same adjustments. But um, where we were at that time, there was a necessity to go ahead and uh, adapt and be very flexible to the environment. You mentioned freedom of movement. Uh, that Was that tied to the violence in Sadr City? Um, very much so. At that point in September, October, November, December, the fall of uh, 2004, um, there had been some changes in the environment. We, the battalion had uh, sponsored a buyback program, a weapons buyback program with the uh, local chief of police. Uh, and um, um, and that, uh, that harvest uh, resulted in probably close to uh, 2,000 weapons being removed from the streets. There was uh, some agreements made, uh, verbal agreements made with locals and with uh, clerics and, and also um, members of the um, uh, Mardi Ami and, and, and the Bada Corps to uh, 
uh, remove uh, IEDs because they were taking a lot of a lot of lives. There was a lot of blood and treasure that was damaged in a very short period of time, and it was catastrophic when those IEDs or uh, EMPs went off that uh, needed some attention. And you can put all your engineering assets out on the road and get them to clear with huskies and buffaloes, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to uh, harvest every IED that's been in place. And so having programs where individuals take it, take responsibility for their own environment, their own neighborhoods, um, was a key. And um, that was a success of, of uh, the vision that uh, both the brigade commander and the battalion commander had, and at the same time that, that the soldiers assigned to the units um, took serious and, and, and with some very much, a lot of pride to clean up the battle space, not just for themselves, for their own safety, but also for the safety of uh, the citizens within Sardar City. The story you're going to tell us today, can you set it up a little bit? I'm going to take it from the perspective of a civil engagement. And, and I, think it's, um, I think it's one of these, uh, one of these uh, moments in life where you start to understand purpose of life, you understand the purpose of the military, you understand culture, and, and you have a real true appreciation for soft power rather than hard power. And so uh, let me set this up with the fact that one of the things that we tried to do was visit local schools and provide just basic necessities. It could be school desks. It could be backpacks filled with school products uh, so that students can learn in an environment or just even feel like they have something that's very possessive, something that they own, a simple thing, an eraser or a pencil or pencil sharpener, a notebook. This one occasion, I found it to be one of those moments that I, I don't believe that I will forget much in my life. So it sets right around um, probably about 45 days into the tour. It's on October 9th, 2005. We went out to um, a all-girls school. We had about 500 backpacks. There was uh, about a company size of uh, vehicles and personnel from within the battalion that went out. And we had some translators with us that were expats. And then a couple were locals. We arrived at the school. Uh, we were received very, very um, mixed emotions about it. Uh, the headmaster was a little hesitant to allow us in because they were concerned that there could be some um, reprisal for uh, having Americans, American troops at the school. But, but after some discussion and understanding what we were intending to do, um, the doors were open to us. Uh, the students weren't too sure what to think um, because we you imagine we're in our full uh, kit. So, you know, helmets, OTV, individual weapons. There are already impressions about what an American soldier is all about through rumors or and and we proceeded to hand out the bags, and there was hesitancy. Some some of the kids hesitancy to accept them. Others embraced the uh, the moment. And I can remember going to this one classroom, and um, probably fifty percent of the class didn't want to accept the backpacks at all. You know, we placed them on their desk. The translators explained to them what what was in them and, and that it was a gift, but they they weren't prepared to open them up. The other 50% is like Christmas morning opening them up. Once the, the, the hesitant students saw the joy overcoming on the, uh, the faces of their, 
their classmates, they started opening up their backpacks too. The, the room got louder uh, with the uh, cross-talking that was going on between the students, the comparison of what they had in the bags, uh, laughter. You could just tell that they were, there was that one moment, the one moment that for some of them in their, in their daily life, that might have been the only time that day they got a smile on their face or might have been that month that they got a smile on their face because they knew what they had to face when they went home. You know, the, the uncertainty of, of um, violence, uh, the uncertainty of um, the family dynamics, whether they have a father at home or a brother at home, maybe they lost them to a, a combat uh, operations or criminal acts, or they might be imprisoned. As we got ready to leave, uh, all the kids stood up and saluted us. Don't know where they were taught it. I'm sure you know, at some point in time uh, they had seen a, a video or a picture. But uh, the teacher had them stand up, um, and they all saluted us as, as the, the team walked out of the, uh, not our team, but uh, the team of uh, folks handing out the backpacks walked out. They saluted us and said thank you in English. And um, we probably hit another 10 classrooms after that and received similar similar uh, receptions and closures with uh, the classes as we left. And as we finished with it, I turned to my, my translator and I shared with him it was my birthday. And I said to him, I can't imagine a better birthday present than what was received today. The joy that we as a team brought each member that was handing out those backpacks, each member that was pulling security around the school, each member that planned it, the joy that they all brought to these kids, you couldn't box it up and put it in wrapping paper and put a fancy bow on it to, to equal that experience. It was just one of those moments that you realize you made a difference in somebody else's life, as small as it might have been. And so, I, you know, I reflect back on that, that moment, some other moments like that on a regular basis. When you think that you have figured it out, you need to rethink it because you probably haven't. And that was a case there where perceptions and biases throw them out the window because they, they probably weren't true to start with. Second part of that is that when, when you realize that you might have a hardship or challenges in life, there are others that have even greater hardships and, and challenges. And lastly on that is that, you know, you don't need a Lamborghini sitting in your driveway with a bow on it to be happy. It could be as simple as simple as and a gummy eraser that's in the shape of a giraffe that brings that joy to somebody. Was this type of engagement common? Um, no, no, it wasn't. You know, two days later, um, I was out with the battalion commander and we were standing talking with the chief of police for Sauter City on a street corner. And we started receiving small arms fire from rooftops that was directed at us. Uh, both the police officers that were there with us um, and and the, um, the battalion commander's um, security detail. And, um, and then you find yourself doing a foot patrol to try to locate, identify, and, and uh, neutralize the, the um, snipers. And uh, not every day is joy in Mudville when you're, when you're in a combat environment. Uh, when you do have those moments, and when you, you wonder sometimes, and I'm sure many people have gone down this road with, why are we here? They don't care. This is ridiculous. And you start getting into your political 
crossing over and you start to question your political and your faith and your your values, you find a way to check yourself on those and, and go back to your warrior ethos. You go back to your army values and, and realize that uh, you are making a difference. But for a couple of knuckleheads that uh, are cowards to jump up on a rooftop and start shooting at people, there are others out there that wanted want to change the environment they're in and be in a, a much better state of uh, quality of life. Every day was different. And, and you savor those moments where, where it's fun and, and uh, the purpose has uh, been satisfied um, in a positive way. And then on the other side of that, you keep your ears pinned back and your eyes faced forward. And uh, you stay focused on the mission at hand so that you and your buddy, your battle buddy, and your, your teammates um, are able to do their job that they were trained to do and be able to recover back to a safe haven and get some sleep, make some phone calls back home or get on the, uh, on the computer and do some uh, Skyping or Zooming. And, and then you repeat it again. I would say that there were more positive days from about uh, November of, of uh, 2004 to um, when I left in July of 2005. I want to go back to the 11th of October when you're standing on that street corner. You're engaged with the Iraqi police commander. Shots come in. How do the Iraqis react? Very much like uh, the U.S. soldiers did. They took cover. Uh, they looked around to try to identify where the uh, fire was coming from and, uh, and then quickly uh, assembled uh, when uh, the shooting stopped and quickly assembled to try to, uh, to find the bad guys. Were they successful? Yeah, that was a pretty interesting experience that day. You know, we're taught uh, to seek cover in, in concealment whenever fired upon. I did that behind a bush in a, in a, in a six-inch concrete curbing laying on, the middle of, uh, laying on the roadway, if you can imagine an island that splits two roads. At the time, um, seemed like natural act to do. Get down and make a low profile. Don't know that the uh, bushes would have covered... Uh, they covered me, gave me some concealment, but I could tell you that uh, the uh, round would have penetrated easily enough through those bushes. Um, and I'm sure depending on where uh, the, the uh, snipers were moving around, they may have even seen me laying there. But at any rate, things were very slow motion, but it, but it probably only took about 10 seconds for this uh, meeting engagement, this uh, troops in contact uh, scenario to occur. And uh, I hear uh, Fenway, Fenway, get over here. Much like happens on the range, your helmet doesn't stay where it's supposed to. It covers your eyes. And I'm buried down on the ground, and I don't know who's calling me. I know the voice, but I don't know where he's at. Uh, with, the, with everybody yelling and screaming around, I, I finally recognized where, who it was by turning my head sideways so I could see out from underneath my helmet. And it was battalion commander telling me to get over to the Humvee and get in it with him because that probably provided more cover and concealment than the damn bush and the uh, concrete curbing did. We got in the vehicle and then went on to a uh, four-vehicle search party of um, a box formation, all four vehicles moving slowly down the roadway um, with the gunners uh, looking up and us looking out. 
and uh, went into a side road, which led us into um, the backside of the houses where we believed that the um, snipers were, and then um, dismounted, and we walked on both sides of the um, back ends of the house in a ready posture as we walked through. And um, you're, you're looking in backyards over walls, through iron fences, and into um, windows that are right there on uh, the roadway. There's not really a sidewalk. It's just uh, a curbing. We had passed down through uh, to the end, which probably maybe 150 yards. And there was no, um, no sighting, but we, we could hear that the Iraqi police were out in the front. And they were going house to house looking for the snipers. We came back up same ready posture. And um, I came by this one window. And uh, when I say ready posture, buttstocks against your shoulder, your fingers off the trigger, uh, but you're in a uh, fire position with your thumb and uh, you're ready to engage if you need to. And I came across this window with some bars on it and lace curtains. And as I did, uh, a woman, popped her head out, and her eyes opened up as wide as a cue ball. And my eyes opened up just as wide. Uh, there was a smile on both of our faces at that moment in time, a quick closing of the curtains, and I quickly moved along. I tell you that because, you know, we're taught about discipline. And, and that, to me, I think was a test of my patience and my discipline because uh, that could have gone very badly had I not practiced discipline with my finger off the trigger, with my decision-making process occurring in a split second, and that woman cracking a smile almost immediately. Uh, not, not in a way to antagonize, but just I think it was a nervous smile as much as mine was. And as a result of that, I think that, again, it's a, one of those moments where it sticks with you and you, you realize I must have made it through the lanes training okay on that one. But uh, we continued on the patrol, and, and the Iraqi police were able to find two guys. They were arrested. You know, thank God nobody was hurt. It was a lot of chaos. It was a lot of risk. But um, I realized at that moment um, that was my belated birthday present. And uh, that's not one that I want to have wrapped up and sent to me. So the, the four-vehicle patrol, that's all Americans, or is it a mix of Americans and Iraqis in that back alley? No, it was all, all Americans. It was the uh, battalion commander's uh, um, security detail. Was the battalion commander out walking the ground with you? He was the point man for that. Uh, he, he, he always led from the front. You know, this was not our day to uh, uh, be the heroes and catch the bad guys. Somebody else was there to catch the bad guys for us. But we were there to then help them get them back safely to the, to the um, police station. And we made sure that they were taken back in a manner that was not inhumane, that was respectful, that was within legal boundaries of, of what the police department should be operating in. And we stayed there, not during the interrogation, but we stayed there as they processed them um, to ensure that there was not going to be any abusive behavior. And, and so you start to learn those lessons that combat situation, you don't get the chance to train the time. You're training the standards, but you're executing your standards. And, and, and then you got to go back and assess them. 
sounds like that battalion commander had his finger on the pulse of what was needed at the tactical kind of low level as well as the larger one. He did. But, you know, the thing is, is that he also, through the train up process uh, with his team, with his his security detail, but also um, with his entire battalion, they were unified in their actions. They were professionals. They understood uh, what was required of them. They understood it. And, and they were well-disciplined, well-trained, and very supportive of each other. So when you get that, we talk about unity of command, but we talk about unity of effort and camaraderie and esprit de corps. I saw it with that unit, and I'm sure that it happens in a lot of other units. But I'm proud to say that uh, uh, I served with the 2-5 CAV, and I'm proud to say that I had the experience of, of serving under a battalion commander who was a... a, a um, great leader, a um, fantastic individual as far as personality goes. He didn't expect any more out of you than he expected of himself. And that bar was high and we all attained it. Fenway, it sounds like you had an interesting deployment and an interesting week from handing out backpacks to getting shot at and lying behind a bush. I want to thank you for being on this episode of The Spear. Well, thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Spear. The Spear is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of the participants and don't represent the position of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. Be sure you're subscribed to The Spear on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app, where you can also give the podcast a rating or leave a review, which helps us reach new listeners. And if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, please find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Thanks again for listening.